And we long inside for a day when justice is served, when Christ is crowned, when our God and Father is given the glory and fame and honor and homage that is due to him. Those of us who know the Lord and love for him long for that. And the end of this book tells us to endure because it is worth it to hang on. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Word Processing's Cover to Cover series, in which our goal is to move through all 66 books of the Bible, one by one, in order to grow not only in our understanding of them individually, but also in our understanding of how they fit together as an inspired and cohesive whole. Today, we come to the book of Zephaniah, and to help us unpack it, we welcome Alex Kanya to the podcast. Alex currently serves as Regional Director of Word of Life Ministries in Europe, recruiting and examining potential missionaries, discipling and ministering to field directors, and overseeing the ministries in the European countries. He also has an extensive preaching, teaching, and writing ministry himself. Alex, it's good to talk to you. Thanks for helping us out. Glad to do it. When we come to the book of Zephaniah, Alex, where do we find ourselves in the storyline of Scripture? Well, actually, uh, Zephaniah lived in some very turbulent times. Um, just to give a little bit of history, a generation before Zephaniah lived, uh, there was an empire called the Assyrian Empire, noted for their brutality and genocide and uh, just about everything painful to mankind. And they had destroyed the 10 northern tribes living in the land of Israel in 722 BC. Uh, they kept moving south into the kingdom of Judah. Judah and little Benjamin were all that was left, uh, destroyed over 50 towns in Judah, and then surrounded Jerusalem with 186,000 battle-hardened soldiers. And there was a young king named Hezekiah, who was encouraged by a prophet named Isaiah, a name we know well from the Old Testament, who turned the whole thing over to God, and God miraculously spared them. Now, Hezekiah had a son, and the son's name was Manasseh. Manasseh became the heir to the throne upon Hezekiah's death. He reigned 55 years on the throne of David and was without question the most evil king ever to sit on the throne of David. He was a worshiper of Baal. Uh, he desecrated the temple with pagan idols in worship. Uh, he was involved in the occult. He sacrificed his own flesh and blood, some of his own sons, uh, to idols that were demonically backed. And the Bible says twice in 2 Kings that he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood from one end to the other, and God would not forget it. Fifty-five years of that kind of rotted-out leadership led to a rotted-out people. People follow their leaders. And they learned nothing, and they forgot Hezekiah's example of faith and trust in God. Now, when Hezekiah died, his son, Amon, A-M-O-N, succeeded him. But even, even these people who were so far from God had had enough, and within two years after he became king, he was assassinated, which led to an eight-year-old boy by the name of Josiah, by the way, Assyria was still the bad boy on the block, but there was another bad boy getting stronger called Babylon. And Babylon, after the days of our man Zephaniah, 
would actually three times invade the land of Judah, the third time in 586 BC, destroying the city, destroying the temple, and taking the people captive for 70 years. It's during that turbulent time that Zephaniah is sent by God along with three other prophets in that century to call the people back to the Lord, to warn them, and to uh, give them what amounts to almost one final shot of getting it right and repenting and turning to God before judgment would be unleashed in the form of the Babylonian invasion. So a tough assignment. Tough assignment in very tough times. Is there a discernible structure to the book? Maybe an outline that can help us get our minds around the whole before we get into some of the details? I know the book is only three chapters long, but there's enough in there that could confuse us. Well, actually there is. It's very interesting. Somebody has nicknamed Zephaniah the Reader's Digest version of the Old Testament prophetic message. Hmm. Because it it kind of summarizes in three chapters um, what most of the prophets were saying in those days uh, before the Babylonian captivity, calling Israel back to the Lord. And the book follows basically two major ideas. The first three chapters are God's judgment uh, on Israel or Judah and the world. That's chapter 1 to chapter 3, verse 8. Chapter 3, verses 9 through 20 are God's blessing on the world. So chapters 1 through 3, 8, God's judgment is coming. Chapter 3, 9 to 20, God's blessing is coming. And that really is the heart of the message of the Old Testament prophets. Excellent. Now, the book opens with this statement. I'm going to read here from chapter 1, verses 2 and following. It says, I will completely remove all things from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will remove man and beast. I will remove the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea and the ruins along with the wicked. And I will cut off man from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. So I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Now, when we come to Zephaniah, we are now deep into the Old Testament prophets and have heard this type of language many times at this point. Can I simply ask, why is God so angry? Can you summarize for us the severity of the sins of God's people and the character of the God who they've offended in such a way as to help us continue to wrestle with this God who is so righteously indignant? Well, of course, you've got to go back to the book of Deuteronomy, which is a book that we would call the Treaty of the Great King. And God had promised them, whom he had redeemed, you remember, at the Exodus. He brought them out to Mount Sinai, and in Exodus 20, he gave them the Ten Commandments and the laws, which are, which were, by the way, God's will for them, who had, they who had already, re- already been redeemed, to live by, for him, to please him. And at the end of Deuteronomy, this is a treaty between God, the great king, Israel, his people. And at the end of Deuteronomy, you've got these blessings and curses. And God says, the consequences of your following me will result in these great blessings. The consequences of you being a traitor to your king who redeemed you and following pagan kings and the ultimate wicked king, the evil one, with his through his idolatry and all of the rest, will be the resulting curses. You will bring these things upon yourself 
if you turn your back on me and decide to follow the gods of the nations that I wanted you to drive out. Now, the worship of Baal, the worship of Molech, the worship of these pagan deities, particularly Baal worship, was perhaps one of the most corrupt, evil, abominable religions that have ever existed on the face of the earth. As we said, it involved human sacrifice. It involved every sort of sexual perversion imagined by man and worse. If you want to get an idea of how bad that was, you can read Leviticus chapter 18, where a list of those things is given. And it actually tells us that the people of Israel and Judah not only lived like them, they lived at times worse than them. And uh, all idea of serving God um, was out the window. Uh, they had become complacent. They said, the Lord will not do good or evil. That's quoted in the book of Zephaniah. And so they lived like the pagan culture that surrounded them. They surrendered their relationship to God, their distinctiveness, to the place where God said, okay, you want to do that? I am going to allow you to suffer the consequences of your disobedience. Jeremiah, who, by the way, was a near contemporary of Zephaniah, put it this way, your own wickedness will correct you, and you will realize it is a terrible thing to depart from the living God. Um, and so God sent people like Zephaniah to warn them, but basically God is telling them, look, I am going to leave you to the consequences of your own actions. And that's why it was so bad. We oftentimes lose sight of just how deep of a betrayal this is, don't we? The fact that, like you highlighted from Exodus, this is a redeemed people that by his grace, God has taken them out and hedged them off against the world. And then they turn on him and betray him. Really, it's been described, I think, as cosmic treason, right? Where they're against their king. Exactly. And actually, that is precisely the, the uh, picture behind the book of Deuteronomy. Some have called it the treaty of the great king. God is the king. They are his people that he has redeemed and has done and will graciously do for them far more than they could ask or think. All he asks for is their heart as expressed in obedience. In Deuteronomy chapter six, it starts here, O Israel, the Lord is one and you will love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. And um, they had no interest in that. In the end, uh, they loved themselves and uh, reap the consequences because there was nothing left for the great king to do but um, open the floodgates at the borders, close off the heavens, send in the locusts, and at the end take them off of the land as he had warned them he would do. Now I know we're today under the new covenant, but is there any sort of lessons we can learn from them in those days, Alex, that the Lord has redeemed us, he has saved us by his grace through faith in his son, but when we betray him, are there consequences? Uh, yes, there are. Uh, there are certainly consequences. Um, I would say we don't lose our salvation. Uh, we may lose our reward, and we may have an absolutely miserable life on earth because some bad decisions you only can make once, and you live for the rest of your life with the consequences. And that is very, very important to realize one of the lessons of, Zach, of Zephaniah, actually, is that God always has the last word. In the end, nobody gets away with anything, 
And if anybody questions that, go and kick around um, in Iraq, around the site of ancient Nineveh, which was the proudest city and greatest city on earth when Zephaniah lived. And it was lost until the 1800s AD. There's nothing left. And so God does always have the last word. And you know, one of Satan's greatest lies is this. Ah, but you're an exception. You can get away with it. You won't have to deal with the consequences. And so God sent prophets in the Old Testament to warn them that that is not the case. Now, speaking of God getting the last word, clearly the day of the Lord is on Zephaniah's mind in this book. In fact, it's mentioned a number of times just in the opening chapter in the first couple of verses of chapter two. To what is the prophet referring, Alex? When did or will it come to pass? And how does the New Testament pick up and complete this theme? Well, actually, um, that phrase, the day of the Lord, is referred to in part or in whole 24 times in three chapters of Zechariah or Ze Zephaniah. If there is any book that I would call the day of the Lord book, it would be Zephaniah, and it would also be the prophet Joel, who was probably the first to introduce it. I'm a teacher here in Hungary, and um, I often use an illustration with my students to explain what the day of the, what this means. Of course, we've had the theologians who have waxed eloquent, read, uh, written dissertations in hundreds and hundreds of pages, but the idea is fairly simple. It's kind of like, um, let's say here at the school, we have a handbook. And in the handbook, in every dorm, it says you're to have lights out by 11 o'clock, you're not allowed to have food in the dorm and other things. There are other rules in this hypothetical handbook. And there are eight guys in a dorm. And six of the guys say, you know what? These rules are stupid. We want to have fun. Uh, they can't tell us what to do. We're going to live life our own way. And so they start having pizza parties in the evening. And the pizza parties get wilder and wilder. And they lead the food fights. And they're not turning out the lights at 11 o'clock. And there are two guys in the dorm who say, you know what? I don't think this is right. We need our rest. We need to be all that we can be to study God's word. And they're like, oh, be quiet. Don't you know the dean goes home at five o'clock? He doesn't know what's going on here. We're just going to have our fun. And this goes on for a while. And there are no consequences. Nobody shows up. The pizzas are rolling in. The guys are having fun. The two guys that are faithful are pretty miserable about it and wondering why in the world doesn't somebody do something here at this school? Well, one evening, the dean comes onto campus because he's kind of been warned, and he sees the lights on, and he can hear him yelling, and he looks, and there's pizza stuck to the wall, and they're having a big food fight and all of the rest of it at 1130 at night after lights out, and um, he goes in, opens the door, boom, and he says, all right, guys, you've had your day, or you've had your time. Now it's my time. And of course, the six guys that were throwing the food around and in a mess, they are living in fear of the consequences of what the dean is going to do to them. The two guys that were in the back and just frustrated by all of this are glad that finally the dean has stepped in and brought what is right and order and a sense of normalcy to the dorm. And I like to call that the day of the dean. Well, the day of the Lord is similar to this in that uh, God has given his laws um, to humanity written in the heart 
through the conscience at the very least and in God's word and in much more detail to the people of Israel and others. And he has given them his rule book, if you will. Mm. And on and on goes the party. And people say, look, God hasn't done anything. It's been going on for how long? But there's this tiny minority there that says, no, this is wrong. We should follow the Lord. Well, God steps into human history at given points, and he kicks the door down, boom, and he says, all right, you've had your day, now it's my day. And that's the day of the Lord. And those that have been rebellion and, and rebellion against him have their last chance. Those that have been waiting for him in belief and faithfulness say, hallelujah, the good time is here. And so in the Old Testament and in the book of Zephaniah, you have these little days of the Lord. There was a day when God said, I'm going to kick the door down on you, Judah. I'm going to bring the party to an end. I'm going to call you to an account. And that is the, a major part of what Zephaniah is talking about. And he also mentions their neighbors, people like the Moabites and the Philistines and the Ammonites and the Assyrians who literally got away with murder in 722 BC and still haven't been called into account. And for all of them, Zephaniah is saying, God's kicking the door down, folks. Uh, you'd better listen before it's too late. But as you read at the very beginning of our time, he sees that as a smaller version of what God is going to do someday in the future with all humanity. Um, you read in chapter one, what you just read, it sounds like a nuclear wasteland or something. Plants destroyed, people destroyed, a terrible situation. And the day is going to come when God is going to hold the world to account for it's going its own way and not listening to his voice. And if you will, he is going to kick down the door in human history and say, okay, humanity, you've had your day. It is now my day. And those who know the Lord Jesus Christ and those who were believing in, in the Lord and in the God of the Old Testament and his coming one will rejoice in the coming of that. And by the way, Zephaniah 3, 9 and following describes the wonderful blessings that will happen for those who trust and obey. And uh, so for them, it will be great blessing ahead for an unbelieving, cynical uh, world that leaves him out. It will be the end of the party. That's the day of the Lord. Boy, that's a great illustration. Thank you for that. And you've now, take, you've now taken us to chapter 3, verse 9 and following, and the hope that this book ends with. And so I want you to talk to us now about the transformation, the preservation, and the restoration that closes this book. I just want to read a, a few verses to give our listeners a snapshot in chapter 3. So verse 9, we read this, For then I will give to the people's purified lips, that all of them may call on the name of the Lord to serve him shoulder to shoulder. There's that transformation. And then preservation in verse 12 and 13. But I will leave among you a humble and lowly people, and they will take refuge in the name of the Lord. The remnant of Israel will do no wrong and tell no lies, nor will a deceitful tongue be found in their mouths. For they will feed and lie down with no one to make them tremble. So there's this preservation and then restoration in the final verse of the book. Yes. At that time, I will bring you in. 
even at the time when I gather you together. Indeed, I will give you renown and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. Talk to us about this, Alex. This is a great, hopeful end to an otherwise fear-filled book at times. Yes, and um, of course, this ultimately refers to the time before the Lord Jesus, the, the tribulation period, we call it, um, as premillennialists, if you will, seven years particularly where God is going to be kicking down the door and uh, re-entering human history. And we read of those awful things in Revelation, Isaiah and the Old Testament prophets talk about it. And then the Lord Jesus Christ returns and ushers in a time that we call the millennium. Uh, there are some Bible scholars that believe it is actually a reference to the new heaven and the new earth, but whatever. The point is, after, after the door is kicked down and humanity is held to account, those who know the Lord, who trust in Christ, trust in the Lord, um, those who have turned to him during that terrible period, will together enter into this amazing time, which by the way, as you read, does not simply include uh, New Jerusalem and the Jews and coming and all. It talks about people from every tongue and tribe and people and nation who will know him and will together give God his rightful glory on this earth in a time that we can scarcely imagine the beauty and wonder and hope of that time period that is yet to come for those who believe. How does that motivate the believer today? Knowing that that is what lies ahead, how does that spur us on to obedience like some of the people in Judah were lacking? But how does that encourage us? Well, I would say there are, you know, Zephaniah lived around 640 BC. And uh, here we are, 20. 2021, 2022 AD, so many millennia in years in a different culture, in a different land. But I really believe that there are three main takeaways for 21st century Christ followers today. And here's what I would say they are. Number one, God is a God of grace who would always rather bless than curse. Why do I say that? Well, we're reading the book of Zephaniah, and the reason why Zephaniah went to his generation and for those to follow was to call them to repentance and faith. If you go to chapter 2, you read, um, Gather together, O shameful nation, before the appointed time arrives, and that day sweeps on like chaff. Um, seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, you who do what he commands, seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you will be sheltered on the day of the Lord's anger. So God is sending him because he does not want to kick the door down. Um, the Bible calls judgment God's strange work, and God sends a man to call them to repentance. And if we have the heart of God in the 21st century as Christ followers, this is how we will look at a world that leaves Christ out, heading toward the ultimate day of the Lord. God is a God of grace. If we reflect his character, we must reflect the love and the grace of God to a world that is headed toward Armageddon. Number two, we already said, God always has the last word. 
We can get frustrated as we look at the injustice, as we look at people who seem to get away with it, live long lives, hurting people and others who love Christ, who die young, and many, many other things in the unevenness of life. There is an unevenness to life, but God, through the last word, is going to even out someday the unevenness. We should always remember that. God has the last word. The third thing I would say for us as 21st century Christ followers is this. It is always worth it to stay faithful and obey the Lord in a culture that leaves him out. World culture is more and more, particularly, I must say, American culture, North and South um, and Western culture, Western Europe, is increasingly leaving God out. That at times is express, expresses itself in antagonism toward anything spiritual. Other times it may express itself in doing positive deeds, but God is left out of the equation. It is humanity that does it. And um, we look at that and we wonder, is it ever going to end? And we long inside for a day when justice is served, when Christ is crowned, when our God and Father is given the glory and fame and honor and homage that is due to him. Those of us who know the Lord and love for him long for that. And the end of this book tells us to endure because it is worth it to hang on. It is very interesting to me that in the very last book of the Bible, you have seven letters to seven churches. And he says over and over again, to the one who overcomes, to the one, to every one of those churches. In other words, to the one who is the victor, to the one who endures. And he tells them things like, hold fast to what you have. Uh, don't give up. Zephaniah shouts to us out of the pages of this old book of prophecy, don't give up. It is worth it to hang on. It is worth it to stay faithful no matter what the cost, because God has the last word. And for those of us who know him, the day of the Lord brings about blessing, not curse. Sometimes it can be hard to know how to rightly apply certain sections of scripture, and particularly the prophetic literature in the Old Testament, but you've just shown us how applicable it can really be. So thank you for that. It is very, very applicable to us today. I'm wondering, how would you summarize this book? What would the main thrust of Zephaniah be? Why is it important? And what makes Zephaniah's message distinct from the other minor prophets? Well, I don't know that Zephaniah is particularly distinct. I would say that Zephaniah, as we began, is a Reader's Digest view of what had been said all along. Zephaniah really doesn't add a great deal of new shocking things. Um, what Zephaniah was is a young man, probably in his 20s, by the way, probably the great-great-grandson of King Hezekiah, by the way, which would have made him and Josiah um, close relatives, uh, here this prince, if you will, is a, is a young firebrand that just opens up the blast furnace 
because he has such a concern about his own people to give them warning and to give them hope. There is still time. Uh, you know, we're reminded in the New Testament, it says that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And there is still time even now, but we know that the sands of the hourglass are slowly running down. Man is having his day still. God is giving time for people to listen to the warning and the invitation that prophets like Zephaniah and many others and the apostles of the New Testament have given in order for us to put our house in order, to get our spiritual act together, and to trust God for the unevenness of life and just stick with it and endure. Uh, and there is, there is no greater hope than all of that. In your years of study, Alex, how has God used Zephaniah in particular in your life to teach, reprove, correct, and train you in righteousness? We believe that all scripture is God-breathed and useful. So this text particularly to you. Well, I would say the two things that we have talked about already in some detail, and that is that God does have the last word, that when we are unfairly treated and when we are threatening in our hearts and in our emotions to lash out, to take justice into our own hands, as it were. We're reminded, vengeance is mine, I will repay, say the Lord. The second thing this reminds me of is what an awful future awaits those who are not Christ followers, and that if God is a God of such grace and patience, if we are going to reflect his character what does the Lord say? The Lord says we are to forgive as we have been forgiven. And uh, we are not to lash out and take matters into our own hands and get out there with the angry crowd. We are there to be people who are dispensers of love and grace by our, by our actions. That's a reminder big time to me. And then also that it is worth it, worth it, worth it to serve the Lord. Um, there will be always those that will misunderstand. There will always be the critics. There will always be those that are saying, you're wasting your time. You know, I came here over 30 years ago, 30 years ago to Europe as a missionary into Hungary. And I've had people say that we were not out of the will of God. Um, why would you do such a crazy thing and all of that? But you know what? Um, we have a bigger view and it reminds me and my life to see the bigger picture of what God is doing and will do. And that gives me hope. And that gives me encouragement to keep on keeping on. That's what it does for me. Well, thank you for serving the Lord, Alex, and blessing us today with the fruit of your studies. So appreciated helping us understand Zephaniah a little bit better. And I hope our, I hope our listeners will um, read this. Uh, and I would just say this final word, Remember that these prophets were real people in real times. They had families, they had relatives. Zephaniah was probably 15 years older or so than Josiah. And uh, Josiah came out of this horrible background with his grandfather Manasseh, his father Ammon that he hardly knew because he died so young. How in the world did Josiah at the age of eight repent and turn to the God of Israel? How did he in 
at the age of 16, implement the very things that Zephaniah was called on to do. I think it was his relative Zephaniah that was probably the influence in his life. So read the exciting book. Read it about a real man who had a real passion and read it seeing the principles, abiding principles that carry right down with us in the 20th century, 21st century AD. And God bless y'all. Thanks. This has been fun. Thanks for joining us this week. For more information about Oak Ridge Bible Chapel, the ministries of the church, or for more resources like this one, please visit oakridgebiblechapel.org. And make sure to join us next week as together we make our way through the Bible cover to cover.